You are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. So in today's podcast, we have Ms. Abigail Dosan from the Consortium for Refugees and Migrants in South Africa. We're going to be talking about the rights of migrants, the issues that affect them in South Africa. We just want to understand what the trends are as far as migrants are concerned. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Would you mind introducing yourself to the listeners? I'm Abigail Dawson. I'm the Communications and Media Officer at the Consortium for Refugees and Migrants and also a part-time social worker providing psychosocial care for refugee and migrant women and children. Just tell us what the nature of the work of Comsa is really. <laughs> the Consortium is a membership-based organization. So we have 25 member organizations who work Uh, in the space of migration. These are legal organizations, research organizations, as well as activist organizations and a few humanitarian organizations. So one of our main mandates is to coordinate and network these organizations so that our work is done kind of in solidarity and not so dispersed and in silos. And then we also running campaigns and have a number of kind of activations around these issues. Mm That sounds like really interesting work. So can you tell me what are some of the challenges that Comsa has faced as far as delivering its mandate is concerned? I think one of the major issues is um, kind of the susceptibility and availability of political leaders mm-hmm. around these issues. Yeah. Um, there's often kind of a negative or a view of just not wanting to engage these issues. Mm -hmm. Um, I think also the kind of public discourse and narrative around migration is currently and for a long period has been really negative and taboo. So our engagement with communities is often up against a very xenophobic uh, rhetoric. And I think another issue is that in this space that we're in a country where there's high levels of inequality Mm. of all people and we don't try and prioritize refugees and migrants above South Africans but promote that South Africa is an equal society for everyone living in it. That's that's right. So I just want to understand what the world trends are as far as dealing with issues of migrants. I think as we've seen you know, in more recent years, kind of since the 2015 crisis mm-hmm. of migration, as well as in America, a real shutdown and closing up of the movement of people. Mm-hmm. So much bigger conversations around migrants being a threat, terrorism is a burden on society which migrants bring. And we've seen that similar rhetoric really grow in political discourse and public discourse in South Africa. You know, we saw in the elections earlier this year the very explicit conversation around close our borders, a real, you know, political strategy in putting blame on a very vulnerable minority. Um, And I think that is a common trend that's happening around the world. Yes, um, and South Africa is very unfortunately caught onto that narrative. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's that belief and stereotype around migration is impacting on policy that's being amended and mm. um, implemented. Yeah, that's right. We just 
asked the question of what the world trends are as far as dealing with the issue of migrants is concerned and there seems to be a general consensus that the narrative is just negative in all parts of the world. I mean we have for example the current um, United States president trying to build a wall just to keep migrants out. As ridiculous as it sounds I feel like it does breed ground for a lot of um, the hatred and a lot of the violence that's going on around and it's quite sad to see that a world economic leader you know taking such a stance it only just it sort of in a way justifies why smaller nations like South Africa would find reason to want to protect their borders and that sort of thing. As a social worker can you try and just help us understand where this misconception of migrants comes from? Hmm. I'll speak more particularly to South Africa because I think that's yeah. where my experience is mm -hmm. um, and I don't think it's I think it's multiple dynamics and so an example where there's a brilliant policy in place but very little political will to implement it is the national action plan against xenophobia racism and related intolerances um, this document has a whole plan for how to prevent and you know solve this issue, but there's no funding plan in place. Mm. So they've literally just delegated work to departments that are already under-resourced or in crisis. Mm -hmm. So again, it shows a real lack in political will, and I think we've seen this similarly, and it's important to relate these issues in gender-based violence. Right. We have you know, this another national yeah, action plan, yeah, yeah, but absolutely. Treasury is not giving any money to actually preventing these issues. So I often feel like, again, it's PR work, it's like a tick box, we've written the policy, it's, you know, we're doing something, but on the ground, there's actually very little being done. Thank you so much, Abigail, for painting a picture of what the situation around xenophobia and migrants' rights are in South Africa. If if I may, I'd like to just take you back a bit where we started talking about xenophobia. What I need to understand for the benefit of our listeners is, is it really xenophobia? Because if we're looking at the trends in South Africa, it's mostly um, African migrants that are being targeted. The narrative is very different from, let's say, the United States, where it's an issue of African migrants, um, migrants from South America and that's so at least there you can see that it really is an issue to do with migrants generally. So what exactly is the issue in South Africa? Why is there, are there a lot of attacks um, towards African migrants and not other migrants? Yeah, I think it's an important debate. I think it's also contentious in <laughs> South Africa. Um, and I, I think both are applicable and can be understood in different ways. So I wouldn't totally outrule that xenophobia exists and say that it's only Afrophobia. Mm -hmm. And I'll explain this. So, and you totally correct that if we look at statistics and kind of the narratives around xenophobia, it's largely black, poor black migrant yes. bodies and people that are targeted. Mm -hmm. But I also don't think we can avoid the policing and violence that has occurred on um, people of Indian and Asian descent in South Africa. Mm -hmm. It might not be as severe statistically, but these people are still targets to yes. violence and 
police searches and mm -hmm. this, you know, really racialized policing. You know, soon after the raids we saw in the Johannesburg CBD in August this year, there were raids on Dragon City and areas where Bangladeshi and Pakistani non-nationals live and work. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm skeptical to totally outrule that xenophobia exists because I mean, yeah, that it's only Afrophobia, because even in the kind of community dialogues we have, the hatred and kind of negative rhetoric is, yes, it's targeted on other neighboring countries, but it is also put on Bangladeshi and Pakistani non-nationals living in South Africa. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an important debate, and I think in terms of Afrophobia, and this was a discussion we were having, is kind of the the legacy of apartheid that's continued um, into current, you know, mm -hmm. contemporary South Africa around really an anti-black narrative, black bodies being kind of the site of crime and disease, and we've seen that being kind of transported onto migrants, um, and that's you know that anti black rhetoric is a direct has a direct link to the apartheid state so in terms of that i think you know afrophobia does have a a strong um, relevance to the discussion but i i don't think we can totally exclude violence that happens to other usually people of color and i think why this debate comes around is because white non-nationals in this country are never targets of such hatred and violence you know we and the example i gave is kind of the german and french and i'm in no way trying to incite violence here but the german and french foreigners who are buying up huge property in mm -hmm. cape town are never the targets mm -hmm. of this violence mm -hmm. and in the same way in our corporate world mm -hmm. where we have so much foreign trade and often tax evasion and whatever is often at the feet of you know western white non-nationals in this country so i do and from that understanding i i agree with the argument of afrophobia being the issue in south mm. africa but my worry is then you exclude a number of other people who are marginalized and considered non-nationals in this country being excluded from that conversation. All right, that's quite an interesting view. And perhaps in order to deal with the issue of xenophobia, it would be important to just understand what it is and acknowledge um, the gravity of, of, of the dynamics that are going on, that it's not just Africans. But I still feel like not accepting that Africans are at the bear the brunt of xenophobia alone because it's the majority of Africans that are being affected. If we were to look at uh, Bangladeshi and Pakistanis, the number, not to say it's not important, but relatively comparing the two, um, it's, it's really not much. You know, so possibly the next question that I want to ask you is South Africa being the democratic par excellence in Africa. I still think it's important to look at the issue of uh, Africans being at the receiving end of 
xenophobia because even during apartheid, most African countries were there to help South Africa, or even Nigeria, for example, paid apartheid tax. But ironically, we find that it's Nigerians mostly who are being targeted the most. So what is your take? What is your view as far as that is concerned? I think it's really a, a key point in holding the state accountable in their failure to um, try and intervene and prevent xenophobia. Mm-hmm. Um, and they failed in their PR project in doing this. Um, historically, many of the other African countries and neighboring countries were safe havens and housed people who were exiled Mm -hmm. um, and provided um, both monetary and kind of you know their liberation history knowledge and experience to Mm -hmm. South Africa's liberation struggle Um, and I think for this reason it's pivotal that you know South Africa really is self-reflective and in all attempts tries to redeem itself in maintaining and providing reciprocity to these countries. I think another area of this um, which is deeply worrying is that economically South Africa and um, in the region is kind of seen as this hub um, of development hub, yes. mm-hmm. and um, economic growth and so we've you know ratified the protocol on the free movement of goods mm-hmm. but refused to you know it's been put off the table now the protocol for the free movement of people mm-hmm. and i think for as long as south africa wants to see itself as kind of this global slash regional hub mm-hmm. xenophobia and kind of the hatred towards people is going to really have negative impact on the region and south africa I hope I'm not sounding that like dealing with xenophobia is a PR project. I think South Africa has to look inwards at the issues that are underlying xenophobia, mm-hmm. which is huge amounts of corruption and inequality, unemployment, you know, I can list them. And until we really look at those issues and try and resolve them, xenophobia is not going to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, I think it's a deep need for reflection and inward work that the state has to take on. Right. You know, when you were speaking, you reminded me of some arguments that that claim that after the end of apartheid, South Africa's pursuit to nationalism was very exclusionary. And understandably so, because they had been for generations been left out in so many aspects. Do you think the nature of the nationalist policy in South Africa could be something that speaks to the reason why there's so much hatred for outsiders. I do. I also think a part of that is the failure of that project. Hmm. Um, so, you know, as we know, the like failure of the Rainbow Nation project, the failure of granting people houses and jobs, left a large portion of the population in lament and anger towards the state in terms of their promised, you know, failed promises. And I think since 1994 and the changes in immigration policy, there used to be huge restrictions on the movement of African people through South Africa. And it was managed through the labor migration and people's contractual labor agreements. And then since 1994, we instilled very progressive immigration policies. So 
I think kind of the failure on the state to provide for what they promised has created a population that has lost hope and is deeply angry towards the state. And I think the state has again used migration as a scapegoat for those failures. Mm-hmm. But don't you think it's high time South Africa start drawing lessons from other countries? For example, the economy of America was built on basically migrant labor. So is it not time for the South African government to start looking at it from a point of view where it stands to benefit? Should not the rhetoric of civil society organizations not necessarily be to attack the government, but perhaps to look at it from an angle of collaboration? Yeah, and I think we have tried to do that um, in terms of providing like, what are the alternatives? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what would be the benefit to having a SADAC visa, for example. Okay. Um, and I think I might get the statistic wrong, but an example of this is looking at the informal economy and its contribution to the economy. Yes. Something like the city of Joburg's informal economy makes 56 billion rand per wow. million rand per capita. Mm. And that's South Africans and non-nationals yes. in the informal economy and you know, the shutdown on the informal economy is located in migration and kind of poor South Africans. And the shutdown of that would have huge, you know, it would be detrimental to um, the South African economy. Um, And similarly, you said America was built off migrant labor. The city of Johannesburg was too, in the Mm. gold mines, um, both internal and cross-border migration. Mm Um, So, you know, the current economy in Johannesburg comes from a history of migration and I think that's often, it's failed to be acknowledged in kind of the um, narrative around migration in South Africa. I think also what's largely ignored and I really think the government could learn from is our internal migration Mm -hmm. and kind of the huge contribution that makes for households and communities. We have one of the largest internal migration populations in Johannesburg comes from Limpopo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the remittances and kind of support structures that that creates for households in rural Limpopo are huge. So, you know, I think even internal migration provides really big impetus for lessons on how migration can be beneficial to the economy and social life. Mm. You did touch on a very important point there because there's an issue of the rhetoric around xenophobic attacks. You usually hear um, foreigners must go back to their home, especially undocumented foreigners. But when we look at the issue, really, you find that Sometimes migrants don't have an option to go back home and it's not all of them who would love to live in South Africa without being documented, but the government itself is not doing enough to ensure that those foreigners are documented. How can we integrate with migrants if they're not adequately documented? How do they get jobs? How do we make sure that the government taps into their skilled labor without providing the necessary documentation for them? Yeah, it's a like huge crisis currently in the country is the inability for people to document themselves. And my sense is that the system actually manufactures illegality. Mm-hmm. So if you look at our asylum system, there's a current 96% rejection rate with 
over 180,000 people awaiting their application to be determined. And this is, you know, I'm not even talking to kind of the Zimbabwe special permit, which has to go through VFS. People pay high amounts of fees to get those documents and they'll last for four years and then this never contributes to permanent residency. Mm. So you continually creating people who live in a state of temporariness. Mm. So which means and it's to how what I believe the detriment of the South African economy because if you allow someone to stay here, establish a business, they will then contribute to that economy. Contribute. Whereas you constantly putting someone in this like state of staying or going mm. or being here um, undocumented. So I think that is a major issue and I think one of the big lessons South Africa can learn from is in West Africa, the mm-hmm. free movement in the region. What it also means is that people can move circularly, which has been historically known in South Africa, that people will come and want to return. And that's one of the major issues with um, the documentation system currently in South Africa is that you've force people to stay here even if they would want to go back because it's so difficult to be documented and I think we saw that after the xenophobia in September a number of Nigerian nationals who wanted to return but their visas had expired here and they couldn't return. So I think a major area, and it is on the table in the protocol for free movement of people, is the SADAC visa which Mm -hmm would then provide, for example, three months visa-free stay um, and the ability to move. Mm -hmm. Um, And that way you would create a much easier system for people to get documented and you would know that people who aren't documented are trying to kind of avoid the system rather than trying to clamp down on people who are apparently illegal. Mm -hmm. And the huge cost in that, I think, Another really big lesson for the South African state to learn from is the cost of managing migration. Mm. It would be a lot more cost effective to put in a really, you know, and it must have all the biometrics and security systems, but for people to have a SADAC visa, then to manage migration in the ways they're proposing, which is the border management agency, um, which what they're trying to do now is um, have asylum seeking processing centers at borders okay. so people will stay at the borders until their asylum application is approved. Now if you look at our current asylum system it means you're going to be housing people for up to 10 years and the cost of that is huge mm-hmm. and we're moving kind of away from our very progressive policy which mm-hmm. is non-encampment. So for the state to not follow, I guess, the global trend around building borders and creating much more restrictive movement Um, because the cost of that is much higher rather than having a safe and still well-managed system that allows people to come and go. Right, right. So what is the impact of, of such a situation as far as children's rights are concerned? Because obviously, if your parents are have moved or are asylum seekers then it means children cannot go to school they can't get basic um, services that every human being is entitled to so what do you think the impact is on the rights of children the rights of women and the migrants living with hiv and aids 
Yeah, I think, I mean, the groups of people you've mentioned are often the most marginalized amongst migrant groups. And it largely links to documentation, kind of the further vulnerabilities that they face. If you don't have documentation, although it's stated in policy that everyone should have access to health and education, there's institutionalized xenophobia and kind of protocols which will prevent people accessing that health or education that they should. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's also important to note that the issue of documentation is a huge problem for South Africans. There's a current case in the Constitutional Court, which is the Legal Resource Center and the Center for Child Law, which mm -hmm. is representing a number of children who are undocumented and being denied access to education. And, you know, the ripple effect of this on your next generation, the likelihood of those children leaving South Africa is very low if they were born here and have kind of made their way through primary and secondary school. They don't school. have skills to leave the country anyway. Yeah, and they've established some life here. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it really puts... It's, like, detrimental to a generation, and as we know, that'll be compounded throughout... Mm -hmm future generations yeah. so I also think like there's huge issues around statistics which is also where kind of the shutdown on migration comes so the number of people who are non-nationals seeking healthcare, seeking education, these are never disaggregated. So mm -hmm. people will look at the statistics of Gauteng where you have the highest number of migrants living in the city and you know we've known these statistics for a while but policy planning has never been put in place in terms of like redistributing funds to where there are more people and those are both cross-border migrants and as I said internal migrants living in the city um, but yeah more to your point around kind of these marginalized groups is they are just shut out further and further and their vulnerabilities become worse. worse. Seeking healthcare is a major issue. We get regular reports of people who are turned away from hospitals, even with the correct documentation. Um, and we kind of call it institutionalized xenophobia, that in the systems, people are just denied on the basis of being seen to be foreign, whether they have correct documents or not. Even if you look at kind of HIV and TB treatment, this is really to the detriment of the region. These mm. are communicable diseases. Yeah, and if you deny people basic treatment like that, the effect on public health is huge. And we'll see now in the National Health Insurance Bill, which we'll be making comments to, there's been an exclusion of refugees and migrants in mm. terms of accessing these services. There was a circular put out last year by the Department of Health. It was later... Um, withdrawn, but that was stating that anyone who doesn't have documentation or isn't South African would have to pay for health services. Now this totally goes against mm. the <laughs> policies that are there. Yeah. But the real repercussions of that and the cost to the state, if you, you know, they may be thinking about immediate cost of people they're providing health to, but what are the consequences of not providing mm. maternal yeah. health or HIV and TB treatment, what is the long-term impact of that? And I think that's 
really where the vulnerability will become worse um, for those people. Mm, that's true. You did mention the issue of having a regional passports. So my question would be, how will the government be able to plan adequately for those movements? So I think it is purely around planning. It's not to just implement a visa okay. that allows free movement for however long and whenever. Mm. My belief is that migration doesn't have to be restrictive but it has to be managed well okay and I think we can learn from the West African countries there were a number of issues and there still are around that free movement um, currency language people who and even you know xenophobia in those areas of people who set up shops or in you know I think some of the similar issues we're facing here so to not just like point blank implement such a policy but to think about the ways it could work because you know as much as we have the highest GDP what does it mean for our trade and I think xenophobia is I think we saw in this most recent will have an impact on our trade relations with neighboring countries but what can the benefit be of trade agreements and you know that requires people I think that's what's been hugely failed is that the um, movement of trade has been allowed but without people and that just doesn't really make sense to me so I don't have all the answers to that question but I think there is value in thinking about the way in which migration could be managed better in the region because the point is that that movement isn't going to stop anytime mm -hmm. soon whether the borders become more restrictive people are still going to be moving yeah. so it's how do we manage it better to know who's in the country so and if you had proper biometric and information systems you would have a much over a 10-year period you'd have a much better idea of who's moving how they're moving what are they coming to do in South Africa you know whereas currently the system is really in crisis and we can't get that kind of information to then implement a better migration system. All right, my follow-up question would be, is it necessary to address the push factors that force migrants out of their countries of origin? Would it provide long-term solutions? To some extent, I also, I do like have some doubts around like, what is the work to be done to prevent like very localized violence and say well, the just DRC there for example yeah. um, let's take the issue of uh, Zimbabwe for example South Africa was very pivotal in as far as stabilizing the, the political standing of it in 2008 where um, the former president Tabumbeki was very central in forming a government of national unity there so it sort of provided a a political stability in that country so we have found that even with migrants they move for economic reasons political instability and we did mention earlier that South Africa is regarded as the regional par excellence the most democratic you know so having that advantage and having that position in Africa would it not be a to South Africa's advantage to at least try and ensure that um, there's at least uniform economic growth across the region because 
why are we only looking at it from a perspective of migrants coming to South Africa? Do not Afri South Africans themselves have something to benefit from exactly. going to Botswana, going to Zimbabwe, going to Nigeria? If it's supposed to be free movement, why is it only in one direction towards the south? It could be, you know, spread across. So I think that's my thinking behind asking the question of whether or not it's important to address the push factors that bring migrants into South Africa. I 100% agree with you and I think it's like a key project but I think like both the migration, thinking about migration and how it's managed in South Africa is as important discussion as how do we engage and build relationships with our regional partners mm -hmm. yes. to ensure that one migration into South Africa is safe and manageable and South Africans moving and I think that needs to be hugely promoted I mm -hmm. think that the South African state has been unsuccessful in that in kind of promoting our young unemployed and skilled people to move in the region mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> the last question for today would be what are your general recommendations and concluding remarks as far as the issue of migration and xenophobia is concerned? I think one of the key things is to include in our primary and secondary education um, programs on migration and kind of inclusion and history around these issues. Mm -hmm. um, I think that'll be really important in preventing and kind of creating a different conversation. Mm -hmm. The implementation of the National Action Plan, it took a, over 10 years to write um, and I think to really put demand on the government to put some kind of funding plan in place for that to be implemented. Thank you so much. That was Ms. Abigail Dawson from the Consortium for Refugees in South Africa. Join us again in our next conversation. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Musina Hama. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.